Hello, friends. In today's podcast, I want to talk a little bit about the differences between instinct and intuition. And I want to start with a story. A number of years ago, I was going to my job, and at the time, I supervised a shift of about uh, 30-some very talented people. They were engineers, and they they had a 24 by 7 shift. And so my night shift worked from about 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. And occasionally, I would go in in the morning, early morning, to spend time with them because I, I didn't see them very often. And on this particular morning, I was leaving the house about 2.30 in the morning, and I was rooted to the spot. I could not walk out my front door. I did not know what the heck was going on. My body was just uh, frozen almost to the spot. I had my hand on the front doorknob, and I lived in a neighborhood that was perfectly fine neighborhood. I had no reason to fear going out my front door or going to the car or the driveway or whatever, but I could not I was afraid of something. I, I didn't know what the heck it was. And I was holding on to the doorknob and I kept looking in the mirror and saying, what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And I, this went on for about 20 minutes. And finally, I literally had to force myself to go out the front door and, and go to my job and my job. And I thought about this later. I didn't really f- focus on it for a couple of days. That morning was the morning of nine 11, 2001, And I was on my way to my job at the Pentagon. Hello again, friends and fellow truth seekers. Mike Nicholas here with another episode of the Soul Unleashed podcast, where my goal is to help you with questions you might have regarding the awakening of your soul and particularly to help other left brain types like I think I am. To ask the right questions in our search for a deeper meaning to life. And ultimately, I want to help you unleash your soul from limiting beliefs and smothering paradigms. So that's the the story of what my morning on 9-11 was like. You know, looking back now, I, I, I think it was certainly intuition that was influencing me that morning. I did go to the Pentagon. I went and uh, got there about 3.30, I guess, in time to spend time with my night shift. And that morning, the morning of 9-11, we had we had normally started our day with a staff meeting at 7.30 and then another one at 8 o'clock. And I went to the 8 o'clock staff meeting and came out of it. It was about 8.30. And everybody in the room, I worked in a center of about 80 people. It was an operations center. And there was all these uh, monitors, TV monitors, not not fancy like they have today. These were actually TVs. And uh, people were grouped around different televisions watching the one of the World Trade Center towers on fire. And it was a news broadcast. I forget what uh, was either CNN or Fox. We had both of them on in there. And I, I was watching it, and they were talking about it may have been a lost plane or a commuter plane or whatever, and we were all thinking the same thing that all of you were thinking. You know, what could this possibly be? It was It was interesting and tragic, but not, not anything that concerned me too much at the time. I had another meeting I had to do shortly after that, the status meeting. And all of a sudden, we saw the second plane hit the second tower. And my life, your life, all of America changed when that happened. And we realized immediately that something was, was terribly wrong, uh, Everybody was rooted to the spot, watching it for a little while. And then about uh, 9.30 or so, we had to have this other meeting because we had stuff that we still had to get done that day, even though the world was changing. And as we were having the meeting in a separate little conference room, I could hear 
President Bush on the TV in, in the other room, given the speech that he first gave, I think from that school in Florida where he was, talking about uh, there was a terrorist attack, etc. And then, you know, we heard and felt something, and we all looked at each other. Uh, you know, no one was really afraid. It was just like, what the heck was that? And somebody said, you know, it's just the air conditioning kicking in. We lived, you know, we worked in a place that at the time was, was uh, had an older air conditioning system. And, and it did make noise when it turned on and off. But anyway, somebody said, man, if somebody was to attack the Pentagon, our security posture here would really change. At that time, the, the Pentagon was, you know, situated right there in Arlington, Virginia. But you could literally park your car out on Washington Boulevard, which is the street that goes past uh, the wing where the plane hit. And walk across the grass, you know, and knock on the window if you want to say hello to somebody. I mean, that's, that's how easy it was to approach the outside of the building. You know, there was no thought of anything like what happened could possibly happen. There was actually a helipad right there where planes landed and pilots would come in and out. And there was a side door that they went in and out of the building. Anyway, it... it uh, people started yelling and to get out, get out. We never completely abandoned that center. And we had a very normal protocol in place. I was responsible for part of that, putting people in place. And uh, we never left. And I was doing that when the MPs came in and started yelling, everybody out, everybody out. A plane crashed into the center courtyard and there's oil and gas that's going to be coming down here on fire. Well, that that got my attention. And the set, it was not true. The plane did not hit the center courtyard. As, as everybody knows, it hit the outside wall and E-ring on the west side of the building. But but at the time, who knew, right? We didn't know what had happened. We'd heard and felt the impact, and uh, we we left. Actually, there was one or two people that did not leave. I don't, I don't know why they didn't leave, uh, but they stayed hidden someplace in, the, in that area uh, and did not leave the building. But we left, and you know, I'm not going to go to the whole story and everything. We got out. There was no real panic. It was it was mainly anger. Uh, there was smoke uh, everywhere. We couldn't see the fire, but there was a lot of smoke where we were. And I, I did. I was not involved in any kind of heroic thing that day. I did not rescue people. I was not in the impact area. I was uh, I was fortunate to be in a different part of the building where we could feel it, but we were not. Uh, we were not. Our lives were not threatened like like the, the many people that were on that side of the building. And as, as many of you know, that uh, where that plane hit that day was right between what we call wedges. The Pentagon was divided into wedges for uh, there was a renovation process going on. And where that plane hit was right on the border between what we call wedge one and wedge two. And just the night before, I, I often at the time, you can't do this now, but at the time I took my, I was a, I was a professor at uh, Strayer University and I taught networking classes and on the last day of that class, I would bring my class in, and I would show them the center, and we'd walk around the Pentagon a little bit. At the, you know, at the time, I could escort a whole bunch of people in. Um, like I said, all that has changed. But that night, September 10th, we were walking around trying to get out of the building, and they were buffing the floors in the corridor that we normally take to get out. And so we were forced to walk along E-Ring. And we walked along E-Ring right through Wedge 1 and Wedge 2, exactly where the plane would impact the next day. And I remember pointing out to my students that there were signs on the doors in Wedge uh, 2 that they had been everybody had been moved out because they would move people out of these wedges, thousands of people. 
move, move people out and then uh, move them back in after the renovation happened. Wedge one had been done. The Navy Operations Center was set up, uh, but uh, there were there weren't as many people back in Wedge one yet. But I, I knew that the wedge was pretty empty, and as horrible as it was, and there was 170 some people that died that day, including the airplane and on the ground. It would have been thousands and thousands of people had the plane hit a fully occupied part of the Pentagon. Uh, the plane hit an area that was largely evacuated for renovation purposes and not yet filled in yet wedge one uh, for reoccupation. So when I heard the initial casualty estimates, as I was trying to get out of the building or as I eventually I got out of the building and went to a, an operations center that Lockheed Martin for whom I worked at the time had set up uh, over in crystal city and it overlooked the building and we could see it on fire. We could see all the smoke and uh, the initial casualty estimates were in the thousands and that would have been true, like I said, had the plane hit a, a different part of the building, but it, it did not, thank God. So my initial job was to to locate where my people were. I was responsible for about 50 folks. My actual company was called SMS Data Products, and I worked as a sub for Lockheed. And so I was responsible for about 50 SMS folks and uh, about 30, 35 uh, Lockheed Martin folks. And of course, everybody wanted to f- make sure that people were not hurt or injured or killed. And so that afternoon, uh, while watching the building burn, we got on landline phones because cell phones were impossible and called as many people as we could and eventually tracked everybody down. And then that night, the night of September 11th, we went back into the building. There was a team of about maybe a dozen, 15 people. Uh, we had got permission from the FBI, which had taken over the, the investigation. And we got permission to go back in. And there's a long tunnel that goes underneath uh, Interstate 395 uh, to get to the Pentagon f- from Crystal City. And it was guarded by uh, police detectives from Arlington County. They led us through. The Army Operations Center was already back up and running. Someday somebody will write a book about not only the reconstruction of the building, but what happened in the, in the immediate aftermath, because there were some amazing things done by people Um we walked back into the building through an area that was normally used for vehicle entrances. All the, all the normal pedestrian uh, things were shut down and we got into the center courtyard and I could see uh, there was a the center courtyard is about a five acre area in the middle of Pentagon and the center obviously. And it has a lot of grass and there were all these bodies laid out covered with white, uh, some type of white material. I, I I don't know, but it was startling and sobering to walk past all this. We had to walk past this, and it was chaos in this uh, little center area. There were rescue vehicles and fire trucks and and police and the military, and they were all trying to get people out of the at the impact area, which was still on fire, and we. We had no protective gear at all, no masks, no, no, no nothing uh, except our shirts. And we used our shirts as best we could to, uh, to get through some of the smoke and then went down. Once we got underground where our center was, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. And I stayed there for two days. And when I was leaving before I went home, and, and the cool, not cool thing, the interesting thing was we were able to come back in the building and operate. And I know we weren't the only ones. The Army Operations Center, a lot of the, the military command structure, the National Military Command Center, 
Uh, a lot of the press folks came back, but the Pentagon was largely unoccupied. Uh, obviously, the, the impact area and the smoke and the and the water damage was extensive. And there was an amazing operation in the south parking area of the Pentagon that was established by, uh, there was a Baptist organization, a men's Baptist group that came up, I think, from North Carolina that set up tents and food. And it, it was just an amazing outpouring of uh, help within a couple days that was set up in that parking lot. However, the south parking lot was where hundreds, if not thousands, of cars parked during the day. And they were all being physically moved because it was it was shut off. You couldn't get to the south parking. Well, when I was leaving that uh, that night, um, I guess I left the night of September twelfth uh, or early in the morning of the thirteenth. But uh, the, the there was still fire. The roof caught fire. Of the Pentagon. For those of you that tracked any of this, the the roof was still made of World War II material, so it was made of still of, of wood and horsehair that had been put up there for insulation and um, had not been renovated yet. And it just ran all over the place. If you look at a top-down picture of the Pentagon on September 11th, 12th, 13th, you can see where the fire ran all different directions. Anyway, I could still see the fire burning as I was leaving. Got over to that tunnel, and I'll just close this little story with that this, uh, this, this ending. As I walked through the tunnel and got to the other end, uh, where I was able to park, there were this, there were still those two Arlington detectives there, different guys, but still two police officers. And there was a woman and a, a girl there. She was maybe 10 or 12. And they were crying and pleading with the police to let them into South Parking. And what they wanted to do was to see if their, uh, their father's car was in the parking lot. And and the woman was saying, he didn't come home, he didn't come home, we don't know where he is. And my heart was breaking for them because it it was obvious to me anyway that if he didn't come home, he wasn't going to come home. And they just wanted to get into the parking lot where he normally parked to uh, to at least get his car or see if his car was there. And they, and they I don't know what happened. I, I doubt that they let her through, but uh, the, the poor police officers were trying to deal with her and explain to her that no one could go into that that particular area. The, the, uh, the recovery crews were also working from South parking. And so the, the men and women, uh, they were the old guard from Fort Myer. They were soldiers and they were clothed in these white Tyvek suits. And they were going into the now, uh, they put the fire out in the impact area and they had to shore up the, the building first before they could let other people in there, but that they were working out of the South parking area also. So, no one, no one was allowed uh, in there uh, unless you had a specific pass to, to do that. So that is the uh, my humble story about uh, about nine eleven, and the way that it relates to instinct and intuition. I've been doing a number of podcasts recently about intuition, and a lady that I interviewed last week, Ange de Lumiere, Ange said that. One way that intuition intuition expresses itself in our bodies is through physical things, like you you feel an urge to do this, or you like when I wasn't able to go out that door that morning, and I had to literally force myself to go out the door. I believe that was my intuition warning me, trying to stop me from going to the Pentagon that morning. Instinct, on the other hand, is is often described as something that takes place in your body that is a biologically programmed response. Uh, 
and primarily relates to survival and basic needs. You know, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I guess it would be the first couple levels of food, water, sex. Those are instincts that your that your body reacts to. I think instincts can be trained also. When I was in the military, I was trained to do specific things instinctually, uh, but they were related to primarily to survival, how to react in an ambush, for example, uh, how to react when attacked, for example. Those things get ingrained in you and are primarily survival responses uh, that you do to protect yourself or protect others. But intuition really involves more nuanced and learned insights that go beyond immediate survival. Ange mentioned that she believes that instinct, can, or I'm sorry, intuition can be described as intelligence that comes from outside the body. And it's kind of a, involves your subconscious and uh, sometimes the rationale for why you feel a certain way isn't, isn't immediately clear. Like for me, trying to go out the door, I had no clue why I wasn't able to do that or why I was fighting that so much. I didn't understand the rationale, but I believe that was my intuition at work. One good thing about intuition and a point that Anj made, however, is that we can improve our intuition, strengthen it. And part of that strengthening comes from recognizing those things that happen. I did not recognize the whole not going out the door thing as an intuitive challenge. Uh, but now I try to recognize things that I think when I'm reacting out of intuition. And that, according to her, is how we strengthen it. So I just wanted to mark 9-11 today. And it's hard to believe it's been 22 years. You know, my my grandchildren have no clue, of course, what happened. And to them, it's probably as... The memory somewhat like uh, Pearl Harbor was to me when I was growing up. I couldn't understand or appreciate it. But I wanted to just uh, mark 9-11 today and discuss that. I don't think I've discussed that on a podcast before. And it does tie into this concept of intuition and instinct and how how they both work to uh, keep us alive and to protect us. So thank you for listening today. If you'd be kind enough to hit the subscribe button wherever you download this podcast, I really appreciate it. That way you'll never miss an episode. And even more importantly, if you leave a review, that'd be awesome. It helps other people find me. It helps the, the, all the search algorithms do what they do and find, uh, find this podcast more easily. And I'll have another interesting interview for you this week on Thursday. I look forward to talking to you again then. Bye-bye.